1: Welcome in. This is the Sunday deep dive episode. We have Brad Freeman here, and we're talking UiPath, a new IPO. We're not going to have Brad next week, so I guess like we were saying before, we should savor this episode. It's likely going to be just me and Ryan uh, next week. But Brad, how are you doing? Where are you headed?
0: Uh, yeah, you? this is this is an emotional time, uh, parting ways with with the Chat Money team for two whole weeks, but uh, or one whole week. Um, but I'm going to Virginia Beach with some friends. Uh, I haven't seen them in a while, so i was pretty excited. And then I'm going from there to Northern Michigan to hang out with my brother. So fun time, but but excited to do that and then get back to some more, more deep dives. Nice, yeah, yeah, the
1: hand uh, up onto the, the UP, is that what they call it?
0: Uh, the, the very northern the, the Northern tip of the, of the lower peninsula. But yes, UP is the correct, is the correct terminology. Oh, right,
1: right. Okay. And we're going to be talking UiPath today. I will be letting Ryan introduce the company. But first, we have to talk about our sponsor, Potential right. Multibaggers. It is a service from our friend and prior guest on the show, Chris at From Growth to Value. And Potential Multibaggers is a service that is aiming to find stocks that have the potential to 10x over the next 10 years or compound at 26% per year. Potential multi-beggars has picked stocks such as Shopify at $77 a share, Okta at $64 a share, Cloudflare at $39 a share. We can go on and on, but seriously, it's a great service, great community. Chris is, you know, communicating with his members. It's really just a group every day. They're talking with each other, feeling out ideas, yeah. giving yourself feedback, and if you want to sign up, you want to become a multi? You can go to seeking alpha and search for it and look from from growth to value or Google potential multi baggers or follow our friend at from value on Twitter. All right, good, Ryan. good
2: Twitter follow, I recommend oh, getting on there. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's it, it, the not overwhelming, right? Definitely you can see
1: tweets every day, a lot, of, a lot of good stuff out there. Um, uh, yeah, Ryan, you want to introduce UiPath trying to describe this uh highly complex uh, software company?
2: Yeah, so it's an enterprise automation software vendor. And so if that sounds like a bunch of jargon, it is, Um, but they're basically providing software that helps enterprises automate uh, sort of these menial tasks or like any, you know, those processes that you have that are uh, kind of monotonous, they're repetitive, they're not really providing that much value. The goal is that UiPath can kind of automate those through their enterprise software that uh, the big businesses subscribe to. Um, and then that way, the people don't have to spend time doing those pointless tasks. Um, that's the basics of the business. But then there's also, uh, I'll get into the actual platform pillars. So there's seven that they go through. So discover is the first part. And that's basically identifying the problems that you could use automation for. And then build is their low-code drag-and-drop platform that employees can use to help fix those processes. So it's not just for like professional developers that uh, the software is created for. It. It's also for normal people that just want whatever it is. If you're copying and pasting something every day and you want that solution or, or you want that system to be automated so you don't have to waste your time on it, you can just implement this. Um, and then three is managed. So this is a centralized spot where if you're thinking about a huge enterprise. Uh, the IT team or whatever can take one automation process that everyone uses and deploy it across the entire business. Um, and then four is run. This is basically just deploying the software robots for automation. Uh, and they automation. call them
1: robots, but it's not like anything like it's just code, right?
2: Yeah, they really, yeah, they made it seem like they have these like- uh, At first
1: you think it's robot automation.
2: Yeah, and it's but. not, <laughs> I think robot is like a fancy word for saying AI. Which yeah, yeah, just helpful code. Um, but <laughs> anyway, right. Yes, yeah. uh, and then engage is their fifth sort of pillar, and that was engaging with automations. Uh, it, it used to be limited for only the people that built the automations, but this tool basically it, it helps the basic employees uh, engage with them as well. And then measure, which is basically what you might think it is, you're measuring the like. Uh, how successful UiPath's automations have been for your company, what kind of progress or uh, less time you've spent on pointless tasks. And then govern. This is basically allowing a centralized place for the company to see what tools are being used, a bit of uh, like uh, if you need a little IT surveillance across the enterprise.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, and you can select the tools by industry too. And that, that's one of the other perks of the platform. So if you go onto UiPath and you go, Uh, products, by by industry, and I pick banking, a lot of banking probably have the same processes that uh, they're going through that could use automation. So if one bank has already done it and they have a solution for that, you can just go ahead and embed that same one. And it might be something you don't even think about. Um, And so you can, uh, when you're thinking about this business, you start to think about all the broad applications of it, there are so many different processes that you could use automation for that you don't think about. So that's really the market they're trying to capture. They have 61% of Fortune 500 companies uh, using them. So it's really going after the big enterprises. Um, and then a little history about the company. The company was actually started in 2005 in Bucharest, Romania. It was originally called Desk Over. It was just 10 people in an apartment. Um, and it started by outsourcing automation libraries, but they sort of started to pivot to their own uh Robotic Process Automation, RPA. If you're reading their stuff, you're going to see that. Uh, uh, a lot of RPA. Yeah. gotta yeah, figure out what that term means. Right. And so they started to make that pivot in 2013. Uh, and by 2015, they were getting uh, their first seed round. And they've had a lot of venture money come into the business. They went all the way to a Series E. Um, and they went global fast. So it wasn't like they just captured one particular market and then expanded. They are trying to grow within every single market. They're in Europe, they're in North America, they're in uh, blank Asia, I believe as well. Um, so, so they're all over the place and they went public about uh, what a month ago now?
1: Yeah, so we only have the S1, no earnings reports. They got that uh, forward looking calendar where their year actually ends in like February almost. So their earnings should come out sometime in June, uh, but we'll look forward to that. Get their first you know, audited financial statements coming out, all hit industry landscape competition not much here. They in they internally estimate that they are going after a sixty billion dollar market opportunity. Again, you know, take that with a grain of salt because it's always the internal estimates. Competitors include Automation Anywhere, EdgeVerge, which is a subsidiary of Infosys. I think that is a public company. Uh, there's also Blue Prism, Soft Motive which is an interesting name, I think that's a good name. And then Work Fusion. So there's a ton of competitors out there, but a lot of them are going after different parts. Some go for more small businesses. And it's hard to tell who truly is the best because there are there is a ton of competition. And unless you're in the IT industry, you're not really working with these products. But it looks like UiPath from the numbers we saw on the S1 is currently the leader among large enterprises. So that's kind of their target market right now. Uh, Brad, you want to introduce management and ownership
0: yep so ceo is still the founder um daniel Dines. as, as ryan kind of said they started in 2005 but but they didn't find a ton of success for the first almost decade of, of their business before pivoting to that rpa ro- robotic process automation um, uh, niche that we're, we're talking about um, so i found that pretty cool uh didn't didn't find a lot of success for 10 years showing the determination and the grit, pivoting and figuring out how to, how to succeed with something else uh before uh, UiPath, he was a software engineer at Microsoft. Um, he's got an 89% Glassdoor rating with a bunch of v- reviews. Um, some other executive team highlights, the CFO is a former financial executive at GE. The legal chief legal officer is the former general counsel at SAP. Um, and then there's a former former senior vice president from Carbon Black. Uh, the, in terms of ownership, there's this dual class share structure that we see so often or so frequently um, now. Uh, the class B comes with all the voting power. Daniel Dines, so, so this is going to go down because this is before the offering and, and, and they did sell stock, obviously. But Daniel Dines had 91% of, of the class B voting power uh, and 94.6% of it was spoken for as of before the offering. So, so take that with a grain of salt. They should be pretty similar, but it will go down. Uh, class A, Daniel Dines has virtually zero um, class A shares, but he does have a lot of sweet options packages and, and, and stock incentives that um, will get him paid if he, if he succeeds. And then Excel Partners has 29% of these shares with directors and officers owning about 38% of that flow.
1: Okay. Wow. Excel, or I don't know how to say that. I always pronounce it like Microsoft Excel, but they, they wow, they've done really well with uh, UiPath. It,
2: they, I believe they were in the seed round and probably it's obviously on. been an incredible investment for them
1: yeah and then did some follow-ons probably most likely as well um all right i'll hit all evaluation market cap from when i was looking is 44.4 billion dollars ticker is p88 so just path. price to sales is 73 based on their last fiscal year numbers price to gross profit of 82 which ryan will get into uh the you know gross margins are really high here but. Uh, you know, price to sales is quite expensive, it's one of the most expensive on the market. They have a heavy-ish amount of deferred revenue, so bookings would get them a slightly better multiple on the earnings, but still, you know, it's going to be, you know, sky high, and they're just barely cash flow positive, so there's not really any relevant multiple there, but you gotta expect to get that high margin expansion over time. And it looks like they had quite a bit of stock-based compensation over the last few years, but we'll kind of see what share count does over the next few years. We haven't really had any good um, track record. Like, all right, what are they doing this quarter, this quarter, this quarter? Well, since they, they've been public, it's only been a month or so. You're not going to really be able to see that uh, yeah. until it's public for at least a few quarters, if not longer. So,
2: And given all the... Given, given all the venture money, I imagine there's going to be a lot of lock-up expirations coming. True. Um, true. So, you know, just kind of expect that. Because of volatility. Yeah, yeah, and I'll get into the earnings. So, they had $580 million, uh, in annual recurring revenue. Uh, that's growing at 65% year over year. Uh, I believe their was it ARR or uh, normal revenue was growing a little faster. No, they had a
1: weird uh, ARR number. It's not true ARR. You guys saw that, right? Yeah. It's like a, I don't know. I didn't look into the definition through
2: hard. Uh, I imagine it's different. very similar. Yeah. Uh, and the discrepancy or the differential between revenue and annual recurring revenue was very small. Uh, but total gross margin in 2021 was 89%, uh, 90% if you're non ni- non-gap was 90%. Uh, and then they have almost 8,000 customers and 13% of them uh, are contributing more than $100,000 in annual recurring revenue. So uh, a lot of, and as we talked about, there's a lot of enterprise customers that are leaning on this software a lot. And then the dollar-based net retention rate was 145%, really strong. I mean, if you just just throw that number in your S1 and you're guaranteed to get a sales multiple above 40. That's correct. <laughs> it That's grows. Correct. Uh The operating margin was negative 18%. Uh, the year before that, it was negative 154% there is clear operating leverage in this business yeah. uh, and there is definitely a world in which they get uh, the margins depending on sales and marketing. could be very high.
1: Yeah. Depending on sales and marketing, flow margins could be 40%. So yeah. And worldwide.
2: there's no, uh, I think the biggest expense for them moving forward right now they do spend a lot on sales and marketing and research and development. I think it's going to be research and development in the long run because they're constantly iterating on this product um possibly and, possibly but yeah if those can shrink or even stay generally where they're at on a dollar basis they're going to be uh printing money and then they had 26 million dollars in free cash flow uh not a huge amount but uh, as i mentioned earlier the sky is kind of the limit for operating yeah. margins with this business
1: and right now scott's compensation i think outstrips their total free cash flow so they're basically they're yeah. basically a break even. You you're not, You're not, This isn't a value stock. I guess this is what I needs to yeah. understand. Uh, Brad, you want to hit balance sheet to wrap up the
0: first half here? Sure. So before the offering, they had about 350 million in cash on hand, plus 100 million in marketable securities, and then they raised another 1.3 billion in the IPO to give them about 1.65 billion in liquidity. They have another 300 million in untapped credit facilities. They have another 1.2 billion in convertible preferred stock, and then to c- compare that with liabilities, they have 20 million in lease liabilities and 2 million in non-current liabilities. So, yeah, so right. um, they can be as aggressive and, and yeah, they can be as aggressive as they want to be. Uh, the balance sheet is pristine for sure.
1: Yeah. It's one of these simple ones where they've just been raising through uh, share offerings. So the balance sheet's clean. The one thing you're probably going to watch out for is share dilution and probably also want to check and see if that convertible, uh, converted during the IPO because a lot of times that can happen. I guess that's kind of a good thing to look at once if they um, once they release their first quarter report. We're I, kind of in the black right now.
2: I have a hard time believing that convertible is not going to hit. It's,
1: yeah, it's not going to yeah, yeah, current yeah, yeah.
2: multiple or else that's maybe a very bullish sign.
1: Maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe. I, I would doubt that the VCs uh, are <laughs> expecting a sweeter deal than this, yeah. but we'll see. All right, that's going to hit the first half of the show. Uh, We're going to take an ad break and then kind of give our thoughts on UiPath. Cox Panoramic Wi-Fi includes advanced security to help protect all your connected devices. You'll get real-time alerts. Oh, like this one. So you don't have to worry about malware. Or when your kid downloads a song from a shady link. And now all your computer can play is...
0: Red color, red color, where are you?
1: All blocked. Thanks to Advanced Security, included with Cox Panoramic Wi-Fi. Advanced Security must be enabled in the Panoramic Wi-Fi app. Restrictions apply. Okay, welcome back. Next up, we have anecdotal evidence and customer stories. Brad,
0: anything here? I know we're not any of us are IT guys, so I don't know. Yeah, nothing for me. I, I played with robots when I was a kid, and, and that is that is the extent of my of my robot insight here. And real robots, not these, not the software <laughs> Real robots, transformers, so, so the good ones, yeah. Yes,
2: yes, yes. It's, uh, I, as far as customer stories or, like, anecdotal evidence, enterprise software is going to be that one class of equities yep. that I never really know that well.
1: Yeah, I mean, you got to just look at the online reviews on the third-party sites. My kind of process really is two steps, like online reviews on the third-party sites and then dollar-based net retention rate. If yeah. those are consistent, that's kind of a good indicator, but with these, it is really difficult to tell if a disruptor actually has a chance of coming in and replacing them or coming up with a better product. You're, it, you're not going to know firsthand, like with say like a consumer product or something like that. You're only going to know after the results get back. So that's the concern with this evidence with a product like this.
2: Yeah. And I guess uh, how many... Big customers do they have would also be important. And when you have 61% of the Fortune 500, it gives that last 39% more of a vote of confidence to sign on with you because you know you're not taking some risk on some tiny software provider. Yeah, Uh, that makes sense. So I guess there's maybe some benefits there. What about competitive advantages, Brad?
0: Yeah, so when I, I think when competition, is for labor is as intense as it currently is right now. Um, I think of companies like Progeny offering um, enterprises fertility benefits that that make employers more attractive. In a company like this, um, automate automating tedious uh, activities, I I think can be a sales pitch for attracting new talent in this macro economy where we're not where there's not a lot of um, spare labor and spare talent to go around.
1: Yeah, that makes sense to you. Or making your existing employees kind of supercharge them. One thing I do worry about, and this is also a competitive advantage is it seems like their implicit pitch is to replace employees know they never say that, but there are I mean that's a good value proposition for a business's profit margins, at least their customers' profit margins
2: there there has been yeah I'm curious uh what this what implementing this software, what kind of bloat it leads to, and if there's firings after.
1: Uh-huh. Kind of blow,
2: oh, like uh, realization of blow. like, yes. Oh wow. This person did nothing within the company except <laughs> tedious tasks. Uh, yeah. well, there's but, a lot
1: of stories out there of people's, you know, yeah, there's you a know, lot of you can
2: meaningless jobs. Apparently, apparently there's a ton of them. There's been a lot of research lately that there's just people getting hired. that don't really do anything.
1: I'm, I'm <laughs> we
2: all know that. Yeah. yeah all I I suppose. Uh, all right. I'll get, uh, uh, I'll get into mine. Uh, <laughs> And I could be wrong on this one, so don't crush me if I am. And frankly, I don't, I don't have a hands-on experience with the product, so it's kind of hard to grasp competitive advantages. But it feels like there would be a huge time cost for both
1: implementation. You
2: mean? No. Well, yeah, because you're you're constantly integrating it more and more. Right. You're using it for more and more processes, so then it gets harder to get rid of, or it sort of becomes so integrated within the system that you don't want to get rid of it uh kind of like ios for consumers like once you've been on ios for like three or four years and you've uploaded all that data and you've spent all those spent all that time on it you kind of don't want to switch i think it can kind of be similar for the enterprise here
0: yeah so there's a lot of examples that are similar Brad, you have anything on that and i mean it could be almost call peer pressure a competitive advantage here? I mean, I, I'm sure CFOs talk to each other and, and if there are these companies having amazing success, becoming more efficient and leaner with, with UI couldn't that create a little envy and a little FOMO? And, and I don't know if you call that a competitive advantage, but it's kind of going along with what Ryan's saying.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. It's so weird. It seems like every software company says, uh, we're 50% penetrated with the Fortune 500. I feel like the bloat, might not be the employees it might be all the SaaS products but i don't know <laughs> i don't want to ruin the investors hopes but uh the competitive advantage i have is similar to ryan's i think switching costs would be high uh you know this is kind of the one you, you think about here employees get used to the system the system gets used to the employees that might be a little bit more of a moat where the system is theoretically and what they're claiming supposed to train itself over time and customize it to the specific use cases and that could potentially, you know, I hate the data economy of scale stuff because a lot of times I think that is overblown, but there could be a data economies of scale here where, you know, they, yeah, you know, you guys kind of know what I'm saying. It's hard to describe just without using the product, but yeah. it learns over time and hopefully it's better.
2: Yeah. I think you're right on the stickiness because they, they their gross retention rate, which I, think is basically just inverted churn was 97% in 2019 and 98% in 2020. It seems like once customers sign on, they are very unlikely to sign off and uh, if if not spend more within uh, UiPath.
1: Yeah. All right. Future growth opportunities, Brad, what, what was your thoughts here?
0: Yeah, we're talking about bloat and inefficiency and, and not being super productive. And when I think of those things, I think of, of the government. So yeah. um, pers- continuing to pursue these, these large government clients, uh, I think there's a lot of low-hanging fruit for UiPath to make um, their workflows a lot better. And, and governments are very deep-pocketed. So um, it's a little bit of a, a lazy future growth opportunity because it's just kind of a keep doing what you're doing. But I, I think that they're in sort of the early innings of pursuing this revenue channel.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. It definitely could apply, you know, local governments, Department of Defense, parts of that, Department of Energy, parts of that. It seems, you know, any of these agencies could really use something like this, you'd think. Yeah. But uh, at that point, are you stepping on Palantir's shoes? That's a question. Maybe that's a dumb question, but that. Um, mm-hmm. or I
2: don't
1: think so. Together. Maybe. I, I don't know. It's too. I, it's way too over <laughs> my head.
2: Uh, yeah, I don't know what kind of overlap they'd have, but that makes me think also, and I, sorry if I'm stealing your future growth opportunity because you're mentioning this, I'm not sure, SM, I'm not sure this works for small to medium-sized businesses.
1: Well, in its
0: current form, maybe not, but,
1: you know. Yeah, I mean, all,
0: so little per yeah. per transaction or per workflow that you need a lot of workflows? Is that kind of, you need a lot of scale for this to make sense?
2: Does yeah, make sense? and it's like, it's just not worth the, yeah, it's just not quite worth the investment for for smaller businesses.
1: Maybe, maybe. But if you're, you know, if, uh, the the anecdotes for every small business is that they're overwhelmed and there's not enough hours in the day. So I, I'd argue it's the opposite. You
2: know, they might not have enough, a large enough bank account. <laughs> well,
1: that's true. I mean, yeah, you know, it right. has to be a different type of product. Uh,
2: I'll get to my future growth opportunity, though. They have... I mean, they've demonstrated this. They have expansion capabilities within their existing customers. So uh, the more use cases that start to get applied to employees' sort of daily operations, the more people are going to lean on them. I we talked about it, 145 percent dollar-based net retention rate, um, and then also getting into small parts of bigger organizations is a nice way to sort of enter because then you know we've talked about that one pillar where. People can see how those tools are applied. They can measure the success and they can start to say, all right, let's apply this to the rest of the organization. Uh, It's reaping benefits. So uh, what's yours?
1: Yeah. So you hit on it. I guess you guys might disagree here, which is fine. But uh, I think moving down the marketing SMBs is where they're going to have to go eventually or not, maybe not SMBs, but just intermediate like someone with 25 employees or something like that, or 25 people at headquarters. Um, It's going to be more difficult because, right now we the anecdotes from kind of what you read when we're reading their um, s1 is that it's a heavy current onboarding process for uipath but it opens them up to a larger market opportunity i mean if the product is ubiquitous and it's basically like you, uh, we can save time with any menial task, every company has menial tasks you know uh, it feels applicable if they can get the product right they might have to change things up they might have to make it more plug and play but you know, there's an opportunity there might not be their current focus, but eventually the spend has got to, at least with evaluation, it's got to, it's got to move somewhere else.
2: My thing is uh, like, think about us. We have a bunch of menial tasks that we use, that we go through basically every day. I'm, I'm pretty far from spending a whole bunch of money to automate that. Uh, I'll stick with the menial tasks until I get larger. Yeah. I mean, we have no employees. Yeah, but that's, isn't that to say that you need scale before this is worth it? And I mean,
1: it depends on much. I mean, what scale. I mean, you don't know well, what-
2: Well, a $5,000 license uh, for an annual I license.
1: I mean, they're custom, they're custom. So like, you know,
2: yeah, can, they, I mean, they have to
1: come out with a new product. I mean, every company has menial tasks. So that's an opportunity, I think.
2: All right, yeah. Uh, highlights, lowlights, Brad.
0: Sure. Uh, highlights. So the the client list is really impressive. Just two examples: Applied Materials and CrowdStrike, uh, two behemoths in in their respective fields. Um, I think, yeah, I, I think just attracting clients and retaining clients like that is a, a clear piece of evidence um, for how how high quality the technology is. Which I'm very. I, I'm looking for other pieces of evidence like that because. Um, I, I don't understand, um, robot process automation as well as, as some other people. So yeah. seeing, um, reading through the, the, the tea leaves a company like CrowdStrike and Applied Materials or both of those companies, um, that makes me a little more comfortable. The low light, uh, it's hard to pick one other than valuation. And I know valuation's cheating. Um, so I'll go with, uh, Daniel Dines having such an overwhelming majority of the class B, uh, voting power. Um, he, there's nothing wrong with him. He seems like a really, uh, morally sound person and and a candid leader and and a capable leader uh but things can always change and i'm not saying they're going to but again it was hard to find something um, to pick at other than valuation um so i'm going there
1: yeah the the voting control stuff can be i don't know it's a double-edged sword sometimes it's great sometimes you might not like it if they underperform. It kind of you know i tend to like it. it it's good if the company's doing well but it's bad when the company's doing bad. It, it really works against us. So. I guess
2: GoPro is sort of the epitome of that.
1: Yeah, I, it's it adds more, not literal leverage, but a little more leverage to your bets
0: if you Yeah, it, it just it raises the stakes for every decision he makes being yeah. the right one. Um, I and it, and it sounds like it or not sounds like he has, he's built a very capable team around him. Yeah. So hopefully, he, I'm sure he's listening to all of them. Yeah, track record's good.
2: You know, so. uh, I, I'm going to touch on a few more of the customers since Brad got into them. I've got it here. Uh, you got Chipotle, Chevron, Adobe, Autodesk, CrowdStrike, uh, Bank of America, Bank of Montreal, SMBC. I mean, it, it's a really uh, credible 60, list. I mean, 63% of
1: the 4 500, yeah. There's going to be companies
2: that <laughs> you don't know. All right. Uh, my highlights, uh, they preach humility, which I tend to like. Uh, and I read a few interviews, which I know is kind of ironic that- Preaching humility. Bragging hum- about humility, <laughs> but uh, I read interviews and it seems like it is pretty ingrained in the culture, um, uh, at least with the top executives. Um, and then also, I-, I think the switching costs are high. Once customers get start to rely more and more on UiPath, it gets harder and harder to switch away. Um, Lowlights for me, Uh, Well, for one, I don't really think I have an edge in it at all, like not even close. Uh, And I don't completely understand the tech. I also, I don't like picking up someone else's exit. And I feel like a lot of VCs got their exit with this IPO. Uh, At
1: least, yeah, for the next few months or whatever.
2: Yeah. Like, it feels like this is being treated like it's over. Like, we, we did great.
1: Yeah. That's always tough.
2: I just, I have a hard time being... The, the one to buy their shares.
1: Yeah, it's risky. I mean, that's, that's, that's the risk of the IPO. Yeah. Um, highlights for me, uh, margin expansion has been very strong. There's a clear path, you know, the cash flow margins that we were saying. I mean, there's no way you'd be surprised if this hit 40%, something like that. 40% is obviously really best in class. But this is just thinking about how there's no physical assets basically and the high gross margins. So their cost of goods sold, it's not like payments. Where you're taking out like half of that already to pay to the other people, or something like that, or like music or whatever or content. Um, so you know the cash flow margin being super high makes sense. Product provides a ton of value at least from reading the reviews. So the value proposition is there. Seems like that leads them to potentially have pricing power. So I mean that retention rate kind of shows the pricing power they have. Well, maybe not. But like maybe that's just expanding to customers or employees within these customers. Um, so we'll see, but I do think that, you know, it leads them to have pricing power. Um, like Ryan said, with these type of products, there's a lock-in with the Fortune 500. But I ask again, how many SaaS products are these, Mer- these yeah, mega corporations going to pay for? I uh, question Autodesk's, uh, you know, you're paying for all these products and the shareholder guys, um, you know, do we need all of them? Uh, do these margins margin stay the same with less of these? I don't know. It seems like Microsoft, you know, or something like that. They always list them as a big customer and you're like, Dang! Is Microsoft paying for a hundred SaaS products? I thought they would. Yeah, like I don't problem. quite
2: get that. Every like every company that reports one hundred forty percent dubner is somebody else's dubner. Yes.
1: Yep.
2: Uh, or, I don't know. It just yeah, my Brad, Brad,
1: do you have any thoughts on that? Have you seen that in yeah. any software companies?
0: Uh, how they how they're just all each other's partners, and so they can all and, and yeah, I, I guess
2: um
0: i haven't thought about it a lot but i guess the the silicon valley um community is probably pretty tight so (laughs) scratch my back and i'll scratch yours kind of thing (laughs) yeah i mean i
1: guess it can be a bad thing maybe well maybe it can but i don't know i just question how many of these companies can go after fortune 500 or customers but we'll see well, um, so, you know, like both of you guys said too, understanding the competitive positioning is hard uh, with a company like this, a lot of competitors, hard to know who's truly the best. And I would worry about with a company like this high S&M spend, because it seems like this is something that's hard to get into the door. And we talked about kind of the, the product speaking for itself a bit among maybe the executive suites and how much money they're saving people. But man, there's a little bit of friction of onboarding. Um, that may lead to perpetually high mm. sales and marketing spend and that's happened to a lot of software companies in the day that has really inhibited them from getting profitability. Um, and okay, last one I have. So this is an industry, high tech stuff, where there's a ton of brain power going after after the market opportunity. It's, yeah. it's That's tough because that puts them at a higher risk of destruction. You, you know, like okay the easy example is okay no one's really going after sherwin williams or something like that yeah it's more boring yeah it might not be as big of a market opportunity it might be super mature but there's not 20 different teams of ivy league and stanford engineers and uh, whatever all the big colleges around the world trying to trying to from
2: yeah and the other like everyone loves the disruptor but eventually there's going to be a disruptor to that disruptor. Potentially.
1: Right? Potentially.
2: Yeah, I guess unless they have a really strong competitive advantage, which I'm not sure I can yeah. really evaluate UI paths. Yeah, right. Brad, do
0: you have any thoughts on that? I think that's why the, the billions on the balance sheet is, is so important for this company right now, especially because they can afford to, to buy um, these tiny disruptors and, and hopefully um, Dynes ha- has an appetite for which ones to buy. Um, before they be, become these intimidating competitors. So, um, yeah, I, I I would hope that they're going to be pretty aggressive on the M&A front with pretty tiny, small, micro transactions, sort of like CrowdStrike's been doing. Um, and and yeah, we'll, we'll we'll see what happens. Yeah, we'll see what happens over time. Um, all
1: right, more or less interested, Brad. What are your
0: thoughts here? Uh, yeah, I mean. There's nothing not to like about the company and I'm, I'm still less interested just because of that valuation um, and not to sound like a broken record, but these high-flying IPOs oftentimes have a way of giving us a, a juicier entry point. Um, and a company like this will take me a really long time to understand um, and to fully grasp. I mean, I, I started reading about CrowdStrike three or four months before I started a position. Company These B2B companies are, are really tough to understand I think it's vital to understand them, um, so I'm probably going to start reading into it now, and hoping that 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 common dip that we get in in the IPOs, uh, in, in in new IPOs comes because this is a really impressive company, and I do see that that really strong margin expansion and that really quickly growing TAM and them taking a larger and larger piece of it. But but for now, I, I just can't get my my I can't wrap my arms around it.
1: Yeah, and then that that makes that makes a lot of sense. That the post-IPO dip is not guaranteed, but just historically that, that it does happen a lot.
2: Right. right.
1: Yeah. Ryan, what are
2: your thoughts? I'm really uninterested in it. Uh, and there's I don't know, enterprise software feels like it has the least price dislocations. Like every time I look at one of these, it's a valuation I can't get around. If this thing, I promise, this won't have multiple expansion. I, seriously i mean it's, it's, it's almost impossible. guaranteed to you have
1: 140 percent have gross margins you can't have higher than like 60 percent free cash flow margins and like three companies don't want have those
2: yeah well i guess i don't see I, it feels like there will be multiple compression and <laughs> yeah um I, it's this one's really easy for me to write off
1: yeah i mean i'm less interested business looks solid uh, but when you're looking at a market cap like this, 44 billion, I, I mean, a quick back of the math thing to do, you kind of got, you know, market cap 44 billion, you're probably implying some stock-based compensation. Maybe that grows at like 2% a year over the next few years. So you got a little higher market cap um, unless none of those options strike, which means <laughs> that stock probably fell like 80%. If this uh, thing,
2: If this thing compounds at 40% a year, for like the next ten years, maybe maybe you'll beat the index. Revenue growth? <laughs> maybe.
1: Yeah, yeah. Revenue growth and then and free cash flow margins become best in class. You have to think, all right, they're doing like what, six hundred million in revenue right now? And you have to think within the next decade, are they gonna generate, I don't know, five billion in cash flow a year? That is tough to do at this valuation. And that's just gonna keep me out. I mean, you have to beat base rates so hard on this. Like is Which so, it it's lit- tough. Yeah. Like yeah. you have, to, I mean, what, but how if much I do was, they need to generate their market cap and cash over their lifetime? That's a lot.
2: of If I was using it every day and I, maybe I knew how important it was to me, maybe I'd change my mind.
0: This is good. But yeah, Brad, what do you got? Yeah. And I mean, just for context, I own, I own CrowdStrike and I, I own Trade Desk and I own these high multiple names. So, so I, I kind of have an appetite for this and it's still, to me, it's just, it's, it's, it almost has double the sales multiple of a crowd with inferior margins and slower growth. So, and we, yeah, hate to,
1: yeah we hate to recommend things here, but like,
0: sorry about that. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, it's, it's, I'm
1: not saying about you, but uh, I was going to say what I was going to say now. Um, mm. if you're feeling like FOMO or something, I don't know, like the Molly fool always has the great thing, you know, just nibble on it a bit. But like, if it's really expensive, you know, you don't want to, it sometimes can be difficult to take on a huge position. Maybe if you want okay. to nibble, I don't know. If you get that FOMO feeling, but remember, it's every, really top with these valuations.
2: Everyone was rationalizing or trying to find a way to justify Snowflake oh, six months ago, yeah. and what's it done since? And the multiple got yeah. cut in half.
1: Yeah. Hey, there's no, you know, a stock can go anywhere, but uh, <laughs> this one is just troubling. <laughs> it is troubling. I think we're all on agreement there. Yeah. A- a- anything else, Brad? Before.
0: Yeah, I, I just, I mean, this this motivates me to to be in a position at some point in my life where I can invest in, in private companies like this, because it it just, I feel like three or four years ago, this would have just been such a, I know it's easy to play Monday morning quarterback in, in hindsight, but.
2: I think but three the, months ago, it could have been a good. Three, yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. That's what it whole like. I mean, even getting in at, at what Benioff and Buffett got in at, I mean, they're, they're still way up on, on their investment. I mean. Just, I mean, that—that's that, the lesson of the day. Become accredited as quickly as you can.
1: Yeah, that—that's where the multiple expansion really is. This is where exactly. So this is where the re- potential multiple compression. <laughs> uh, but we'll see. All I right. I mean, we hope you iPad as well. We don't need to belabor this.
2: More or less interested. Um, or sorry, I'm more or less interested. Stock for next week.
1: Yeah, uh, i I'm I'm less interested. Stock for next week. My choice. We're going Vimeo, just spin off of IAC. Right. Good business. Another expensive stock, uh, but we'll check it out. Uh, seems like a really strong business. All right. That's going to do it for this episode. Make sure, as always, to check out Potential Multibaggers, our sponsor for the show. Thank you for doing that. Remember, we are not financial advisors. Anything we say on this show is not formal advice or recommendation. Ryan and I are general partners at Arch Capital. Arch Capital clients may hold securities discussed in this podcast. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time.